This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the show, I have an extra special guest. I know you guys give me grief for saying that every week, but I really have an extra special guest. Professor Danny Kahneman, winner of the 2002 Nobel Prize in Economics, which is quite a feat when you realize that he's not an economist, he's a cognitive psychologist, author of the book Thinking Fast and Slow. Before we get to the podcast, which is really quite fascinating, just a quick funny story. So we finished doing the interview and we're heading out of the Bloomberg building. Where are you heading to? Oh, I'm going over here. Oh, I'm heading in that same direction, I tell. Danny, which is what he insists everybody call him. And so we take a subway downtown and we are get out at Grand Central and we're walking someplace. And, and he says to me, listen, you don't have to walk me to where I'm going. I, I'm a New Yorker. I know where I am. And I said, well, to tell you the truth, it's 2 o'clock. I haven't had lunch yet. A block from where your destination is is this lovely um, sandwich shop called Aladoro. Just opened in Midtown. There's a Soho branch. It's really good. I'm just heading in your direction anyway. So he looks at me and says, the sandwich is really that good? Yes, they're delicious. So long story short, we go into this place. It's essentially a takeout joint with one long picnic table in the back. Most people um, take sandwiches out. And it's 2 o'clock, so the rush, uh, lunch hour rush is over. So I, I, we order sandwiches. It takes a few minutes. I kind of put him, sit him down at the table, and I said, I'll, I'll go get the sandwiches. And so as I'm coming back to the table, I, there is Professor Kahneman sitting at a picnic table, surrounded by, I don't know, a dozen millennials, ki- kids who could have been in his class a couple of years ago at Princeton, and they're just wholly oblivious to this kindly professor sitting amongst them. Here's a brilliant thinker who changed the way we think about how we think. And just everybody completely, wholly unaware that that brilliance is in their midst. And it, it, the whole thing just cracked me up. I found the interview to be absolutely fascinating. I think you will also. So with no further ado, my conversation with Danny Kahneman. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Our special guest this week, and I know I say this all too often, but we really do have an extra special guest this week. His name is Professor Daniel Kahneman. He taught at the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton, both in psychology and public affairs. He is a fellow at the Center for Rationality at Hebrew University, winner of the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences, as well as the Lifetime Contribution Award of the American Psychology Association. Uh, And he is a recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom. I could go on and on about his curriculum vitae, but I would rather jump right into this. Danny Kahneman, welcome to Bloomberg. Pleased to be here. So I'm excited to talk to you about so many different things Let's start way back at the beginning. You you began your academic career in Israel. Did did you expect to spend the rest of your life working in academia? Oh yeah, I mean I I expected to be a professor when I was a kid. And so you win the Nobel Prize in two thousand and two, not for psychology, which is your field of study, but but for economics. How does a psychologist win a prize for economics? Well, I mean, there is no Nobel in psychology, but uh, we won it in economics for work that is psychological. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you said we, inf- it's you and Amos Tversky. I mean, he didn't actually win this because they don't give it posthumously, but, mm-hmm. you know, I always felt it it's a joint prize because mm-hmm. the, the prize wa- was awarded for work we had done together. And it was work that influenced economics. So it's on the influence in general that you get a Nobel, not on the quality of the work necessarily. So, so let's talk about your colleague, um, Amos Tversky. Uh, in your book, Thinking Fast and Slow, you describe first seeing him speak uh, I think it was around 1969, and the subject was 
do people make good intuitive statistical assumptions? Did you know right away the two of you were destined to be research partners? Uh, no, but uh, what happened was he visited a seminar I was teaching. I mean, I invited him, and he spoke about some research that was being done at Michigan at the time mm -hmm. on whether people are good intuitive statisticians, and their conclusion was that they are. And so we That's had very counterintuitive. Well, it's now counterintuitive. At that time, it sounded quite intuitive, and we had a very heated discussion. You know, they they have those in Israel, and it was a very Israeli type of conversation, and we enjoyed it, both of us. We decided to have lunch together the following Friday, and there we we discussed ideas over that lunch and we didn't know that it was going to shape our lives but we had a pretty good inkling of what we wanted to do next so the two of you established a cognitive basis for analyzing common human errors and how they arrive from biases how did you guys happen across across that discovery we started you know, from a combination of what Amos knew and what I was specialized in. And my specialty at the time was visual perception. Mm -hmm. And in visual perception, you have illusions. And analyzing the illusions is interesting because the illusions teach you something about the mechanism of normal perception. And Amos was an expert on decision theory and mm -hmm. on formal analysis, and we complemented each other very well. And the idea that the research that we developed eventually was really a research on cognitive illusions and where they come from. And we proposed a mechanism, and the mechanism, we call, we call those heuristics, and now have a somewhat different interpretation, not very different, but slightly different from the one we had at that time. I mean, the general idea is quite simple. You ask people a complicated question, like, what is the probability of an event? And they can't answer it because it's very difficult. But there are easier questions that are related to that one that they can answer, so, such as, uh, is this a surprising event? That is something that people know right away. Is it a typical result of that kind of mechanism? And people can answer that right away. So... And what happens is people take the answer to the easy question, they use it to answer the difficult question, and they think they have answered the difficult question. In fact, they haven't. They answered an easier one. So that was the mechanism that we studied. You mentioned that your view on heuristics has changed somewhat over the years. Uh, what's the difference between what you well, believe today and, and way back when? Well... We started out with what we called a limited number of heuristics, and they, they became quite well known because we had a paper that we published in 1974 that in, we published it in science magazines, so it was widely read across many disciplines. And in that paper, we spoke about three major heuristics, and we analyzed the biases that these heuristics lead to. And Many people would know their name from if they went to business school. So mm -hmm. it's representativeness, it's an availability and anchoring. Uh, what I'm thinking of now is that there is a more general process, and that's the process I described a minute ago. I call that attribute substitution. It's to substitute one question for another. So instead of answering the complex, difficult question, you answer what you can which is That's the easier right. question. That's right. So if I ask you an example that comes to mind, how happy are you these days? Now, you know your mood right now. Mm -hmm. You're very likely to tell me your mood right now and think that you have answered the more general question of how happy are you these days. So that's, that's another example. And there are many like that. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Nobel Prize-winning psychologist Danny Kahneman, who has specialized in both cognitive and decision-making processes. Let's, let's jump right into some of the things that you discussed in Thinking Fast and Slow, a book that I found to be just uh, right in the sweet spot of my confirmation bias. It was everything uh, I hoped it to be. You talked about 
what you see is all there is when, when discussing systems one and two. It's almost a, a theme throughout the book. Explain what that is, what you see is all there is. Well, people are really not aware of information that they don't have. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the the idea which is emphasized in the book is that you take whatever information you have and you make the best story possible out of that information. And the information you don't have, you don't feel that it's necessary. And I have an example that's, uh, that I think brings that out. If I tell you about a, a national leader that uh, she is intelligent and firm. Mm-hmm. Now, do you have an impression already whether she's a good leader or a bad leader? And you certainly do. Mm-hmm. She's a good leader. Now, the third word that I was about to say is corrupt. But, uh, <laughs> you know, the point being that you didn't wait for information that you didn't have. Right. You formed an impression as we were going with the information you did have. And this is what you see is all there is. The working assumption amongst people who are trying to draw a conclusion from available information is they fail to calculate the impact of data they're either unaware of or don't know or simply haven't encountered. That's right. I mean, people, if what people are trying to do is to make the best story possible out of the information they have, then this is what they're going to do. And the the measure of confidence that people have in in their beliefs and their opinions is really a reflection of the quality of the story that they've told themselves. So, so let's talk about that narrative because it's it's one of my favorite errors in investing is that we tell ourselves these complex narratives that seem to fit whatever information is in front of us, and that very much creates a risk that the narrative, as emotional and compelling as it might be, is possibly misleading. How does that fit into your work? I think Nassim Taleb has a very nice example in his uh, in his book, The Black Swan. It's an example of, that happened at Bloomberg, mm-hmm. on Bloomberg News. And it happened the day that Saddam was caught. Mm-hmm. And something happened in the bond market shortly thereafter. I forget whether it rose or it fell. And the headline was, Saddam caught and investors are fleeing from risk. And then a few hours later, the market reversed, and there was a headline that said, Saddam caught, investors feel more secure taking risk. So now what happened was, obviously, it's not plausible that that you could explain two opposite consequences by the same thing. But you can make a very good story. And what happens, and commentators on Bloomberg Radio and all other pundits, what they do, there is a salient event today. Mm-hmm. So when you're looking at a, what happened in the market, you're looking back and you see that salient event and irresistibly, you think there is a causal connection. Right. So whatever happened in the market, you attribute to the salient event. Went up, went down, whatever, it's always, it's, it makes a good story. I have a very vivid recollection. Early in the 2003 Iraq invasion, there was a important, highly regarded mosque that was blown up by uh, American warplanes. And the headline, and I don't remember if it was the Times or the Wall Street Journal, but it was a big publication, oil prices skyrocket on mosque accidentally being blown up. And later that day, so you're looking at this online, later that day, the oil prices had come back down, and it was the same headline, only changing the conclusion. Yeah. Mosque destroyed, oil prices remain stable. Well, if it's going up and down after the event, it, it means the event isn't really significant, is it? Well, clearly. So let's talk a little bit about some of the biases, those three biases you discovered early on, availability, anchoring, and representativeness. First, These are three enormous biases. First question, why publish in Discover Magazine or Science Magazine as opposed to some staid academic journal? Oh, we had done our homework. I mean, we published in staid academic journals first. Mm -hmm. And then what we published in Science 
which, you know, is a scientific magazine. I mean, it's not... It's but, a popular magazine. No, it's not. No, it's a... It's Science is a professional oh, okay. uh, magazine, but it's, uh, it's addressed to scientists of all disciplines. Got it. But, you know, it's a, it's a perfectly respectable scientific mm-hmm. magazine. No, we, did, we, we were academics. We published academically. We didn't publish and discover. They looked us up and mm-hmm. they interviewed us and they, they wrote about us. But we didn't seek that out. We were really academics. We were not trying to influence the world. And whatever happened, happened, but that wasn't really what we intended. Did, did you have any sense of the enormity of these three particular biases early on? Well, when we wrote for science, we had a sense that this was an important story. We really did not anticipate the impact that it had mm-hmm. on on many fields, including investment and the law and 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 even economics, it had a, a lot of influence, and that we didn't anticipate really. So, so let's talk about a couple of these. You you mentioned availability bias; it's just the information you have. Anchoring is an enormous factor in things like negotiations and pricing. I love the story of just asking people, ask a group of people in a room what the first digit of their phone number is. And then ask them a separate, unrelated question. A higher digit will yield a higher number on the unrelated question, and a lower first digit yields a lower. How did how did that discovery come about? Well, actually, it takes a little more than that. But I'll, I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the example of negotiation, many people think that you have an advantage if you go second. But actually, the advantage is going first. Throw out the first number, and that's where you're you anchored. Throw out, and and the reason is something in about the way the mind works, and the mind works. It tries to make sense of whatever you put before it. Mm-hmm. So this built-in tendency that we have of trying to make sense of everything that we encounter, that is a mechanism for. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Nobel Prize winning psychologist Danny Kahneman, who has specialized in both cognitive and decision making processes. Let's talk a little bit about biases and money since this is Bloomberg and many of our listeners are investors. I want to start with prospect theory, which is something that's I find absolutely fascinating. The basic idea is that we feel losses much more severely than we enjoy gains. The first question I have for you about this is, how did you discover this? Well, the idea that came first or the, was that the standard financial analysis and what's called the rational agent model fails in an important way. And in the rational agent model, you should always be thinking in terms of wealth. Mm-hmm. You know, what will be my wealth if this happens? What will be my wealth if that happens? And all the theory is based on the idea that you are thinking in terms of your wealth. But it turns out you're not thinking in terms of your wealth at all. You're thinking in terms of gains and losses. You're mm-hmm. thinking in terms of changes of wealth. So that was the first thing that that was important to it- to establish. It, it was clear homo economists is what the uh, professors call it, not a really good representation of how people behave That's in the That's right. World. And, you know, that this is sort of immediately obvious that mm-hmm. people don't think in terms of their wealth. But, and it's easy to show mm-hmm. that, that they don't because you can describe the same decision, which is the same in terms of wealth. You can give it two different descriptions and people will make different choices depending on whether it's represented in gains or losses. Mm-hmm. So that was the first discovery, if you will. I mean, you know, it had been stated before, by the way, Markowitz, Harry Markowitz. Sure, uh, modern portfolio he had, theory. He had, written, he had written one article on this about changes being important. He didn't follow through. And we came upon this and we did follow through. Now, once you have that, that people are thinking gains and losses, it's easy to see that there is an asymmetry. That is that losses, as we said, loom larger than gains. And we even have a pretty good idea of by how much do they loom larger than gains? By about two to one. Okay. And, you know, an example, how to bring that out is... 
I'll offer you a gamble on the toss of a coin. You know, if it throws tails, you lose 100. And if it throws heads, you win X. Mm-hmm. Now, what would X have to be for that gamble to become really attractive to you? Well, more than 100, so it's more than Actually, just a 50, for 50. You're a professional. There is a difference between professionals and others. Mm-hmm. Most people, and that's been well-established, demand more than 200. Really? So yeah. they want two-to-one odds. They, they want, want the two odds to one in their odds. favor, which uh, is no, pretty consistent. It's not the odds. I mean, the odds are one-to-one. It's equal chances. It's the payout. Of, it's of, the payout of, has to be two-to-one, mm-hmm. meaning that it takes $200 of potential gain to compensate for $100 of potential loss when the chances of the two are equal. Are equal. Interesting. So that's loss aversion. Turns out that loss aversion has enormous consequences. Enormous, absolutely. So, so that leads to a, a couple of really interesting questions. The first one is, what is it about losses that make them so much more painful than gains are pleasurable? In other words, why does this two-to-one risk of loss aversion, why does this even exist? Well, I mean, you know, this... This is evolutionary. I mean, you you would imagine that uh, in evolution, threats are more important than opportunities. That makes a lot of sense. Sure. And so it's a very general phenomenon that sort of bad things sort of preempt or are stronger than good things in our experience. So loss aversion is a special case of something much broader. So there's always another opportunity coming along, another game another deer coming by but an actual genuine loss hey uh, that's permanent you don't recover from that that's right anyway you take it more seriously mm-hmm. so if there is a, a deer in your sights and a lion uh, you are going to be busy about the lion and not about the deer Make, makes sense that leads to the obvious question well what can investors do to protect themselves against this hardwired uh well loss of uh, there's several things they can do One is not to look at their results, not to look too often at how well they're doing. And today you could look tick by tick, minute by minute. It's the worst thing. It's a very, very bad idea to look too often. When you look very often, you are tempted to make changes. Mm -hmm. And where individual investors lose money is when they make changes in their allocation. Virtually, on average, Whenever uh, an investor makes a move, it's likely to lose money because there are professionals on the other side betting against the kind of moves that individual investors do. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Danny Kahneman. He is the Nobel Prize winning psychologist, uh, formerly professor at Princeton, who has had an enormous influence on the fields of economics and investing. Let's get right back to the question of investing and the professionals versus the amateurs. Do we see the same sort of biases and errors amongst the professionals? They're clearly much attenuated among professionals. So I'll give you an example. I mean, and that's the biggest example. It's what makes loss aversion important. If I ask you, would you take a gamble? If I ask a a regular person in Mm. the street, not you because you're a professional, but if I ask a regular person in the street, would you take a gamble that if you lose, you lose $100. If you win, you win 180 on the toss of a coin? That's a no-brainer. Well, it's a no-brainer for professionals. Most people don't like it. Really? 180 versus 100? 180 versus 100. I'll do that all day long. Yeah, because you're a professional. Now, when you ask the same people in the street, okay, you don't want this one, would you take 10? So we'll toss 10 coins. And every time, if you lose, you lose 100. And if you win, you win 180. Everybody wants the 10. Nobody wants the one. Ah, so in other words, they think the math, the statistics will in, play out better. There's in, you intuitive statistics. In repeated play, when the game is repeated, then people see, they become much closer to risk neutral, mm-hmm. and they see the advantage of gambling. Now, professionals are in a repeated play situation. Sure. That's the biggest difference. And so they view each decision that they make out of a stream of decisions that they're going to make. Now, this, by the way, 
is true for investors as well. One question that I ask people when I tell them about that, so you've turned down 100, 180. Mm-hmm. Now, but you would accept 10 of those. Now, are you on your deathbed? That's the question I ask. Is that the last decision you're going to make? And clearly, there are going to be more opportunities to gamble, perhaps not exactly the same gamble, but there'll be many more opportunities. Mm-hmm. You need to have a policy for how you deal with risks and then make your decisions, your individual decisions, in terms of a broader policy. Then you'll be much closer to rationality. But on the single flip of a coin, the average individual is going to look at this and say, hey, I'll feel foolish if I lose 100, even though the payout is greater than my potential loss. That's exactly what happens, and you shouldn't feel that way. I mean, now it's true that you will feel like a fool. It's very closely related to what you see is all there is. Mm -hmm. That is, we tend to see decisions in isolation. We don't see a decision about whether I take this gamble as one of many similar decisions that I'm going to make in future. So are people overly outcome-focused to the detriment of process? What they are, we call that narrow framing. They view the situation narrowly. Mm -hmm. And that is true in all domains. So, for example, we say that people are myopic, that they have a narrow time horizon. To be more rational, you want to look further in time, and then you'll make better decisions. If you're thinking of where you will be, you know, a long time from now, it's completely different from thinking about how will I feel tomorrow if I make this bet and I lose. I I recall reading about a study, and I hope I don't mangle this too badly, where they would take a photo of somebody and then using software age their face, and then when they would ask the people who had the current photo of their own face, they would get a very different answer than the group that were better able to imagine themselves 25 years hence. Yeah, that's about saving. Mm -hmm. I mean, what actually happens is that when you show people morphed image of their face as an old person, their tendency to save increases. So it's easier for them to identify with their future self. But in general, that's not what we do. People aren't especially good about that. Let's talk about being wrong and being able to admit that you're wrong. John Kenneth Galbraith once famously said, given the choice between changing one's mind and proving there's no need to do so, most people get busy on the proof. You called this theory-induced blindness. So why are we so unwilling to admit when we're wrong? You know, you try to make the best story possible, and the best story possible includes, quite frequently, I actually didn't make that mistake. You know, so something occurred, and in fact, I did not anticipate it. But in retrospect, I did anticipate it. This is called hindsight. Sure. And that's one of the main reasons that we don't admit that we're wrong, is that whatever happens, we have a story. We can make a story. We can make sense of it. We think we understand it. And when we think we understand it, we alter our image of what we thought earlier. I'll give you a kind of example. That uh, So you have two teams that are about to play, you know, a football. And the two teams are about e- evenly balanced. Now, one of them completely crushes the other. Now, after you have just seen that, they're not equally strong. You perceive one of them as much stronger than the other. And that perception gives you the sense that, you know, this must have been visible in advance that one of them was much stronger than the other. So hindsight is, that's a big deal. It allows us to keep a coherent view of the world. It blinds us to surprises. It prevents us from learning the right thing. It allows us to to learn the wrong thing. That is, whenever we're surprised by something, even if we do admit that we make a mistake, say, oh, I'll never make that mistake again. But in fact, what you should learn, what you should learn when, when you make a mistake because you did not anticipate something, that the world is difficult to anticipate. 
that's the correct lesson to learn from surprises, that the world is surprising. It's not that my prediction is wrong. It's that predicting in general is almost that's impossible. Right. You know, it's it's ironic. During the 08-09 financial crisis, we saw very few people beforehand making warnings about housing, about derivatives, about the stock markets. A pair of academics, Reinhardt and Rogoff, very famously put out a paper in January 08, widely ignored. Afterwards... I can't tell you how many people have claimed to have seen it coming, never in print, there's no recorded history, but they all saw it coming and they knew this was going to go south. Pure hindsight bias. This is really hindsight bias. And it's actually very pernicious Mm -hmm. because it gives you the wrong impression. So uh, I love Michael Lewis and I like the big short, uh, like everybody. But the big short really gives you the impression that this was as obvious as the nose, you know. See, when I read that book, my interpretation was here are a very small number of very odd characters who were amongst the only ones who saw it, and everybody else thought they were crazy. I mean, and the movie does a nice job portraying that. Yeah, but actually, at any one time, there are many people who are predicting that the world is going to end tomorrow or that there's going to be a crash next week. Now, there is no crash. Those people get forgotten. Mm. When there is a crash, they're they're sort of geniuses. Right. We've seen uh, that time and again, the broken clock syndrome. Eventually, they're right. Everybody forget. Although in the modern world, thanks to Google, you can very easily go back and check if someone has said there. There's a famous pundit who is for the past seven years has been saying a 1987-like crash is around the corner. It's coming. Well, maybe, but it's now seven years in a row you've been saying that. I mean, there are many people, you know, the saying is, who predicted seven of the last three recessions. It's that sort of thing. So speaking of Michael Lewis, you and uh, Amos Tversky are the subject of his next book that's coming out. Let's talk about that. What was that experience like? Michael Lewis is a very lovable character and Mm -hmm. he's very pleasant to talk to. And he earns your confidence mm-hmm. by his charm and, you know, he just, he is very good at what he does. I, I haven't seen the book. I have no idea what it's, what's, I don't even want to see it oh. before it gets published. <laughs> you know, when it gets published, I'll read it, of course. But the process has been interesting because he's made me think about my past. Mm-hmm. And that's been quite enjoyable. It's made me think about my my collaboration with Amos Tversky. Now, Amos Tversky died 20 years ago, and uh, he is bringing him to life. And he also had access to all of Amos's papers, including notes that Amos took on conversations we had that I'd forgotten all about. Hmm. So it's it's been a, an interesting experience reliving that period. What the experience will be about reading the book, I don't know yet. You can hang around a little bit. We'll keep uh, we'll keep yeah. chatting. We've been speaking with Professor Danny Kahneman, winner of the 2002 Nobel Prize in Economics, former psychology professor at Princeton. If you've enjoyed this conversation, be sure and stick around for our podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things biases and heuristics. Be sure and check out my daily column on Bloomberg.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, by the way, uh, it's so odd to call you Danny. Danny, if I haven't said thank you so much for being so generous with your time, let me do that now before right. before I um, forget. I, I have been a, a, a big fan of your work for a long time. And in my career, I started as a trader and pretty early on recognize that why are these four guys doing the exact same thing and yet they're each obtaining very different results and the first book on the in the space i read was by uh, tom gilovich and cornell who i believe you've you've worked with before um how we know it isn't so was was that book mm-hmm. uh but i've loved uh, the work that you've put out and i have a bajillion questions let's see if we can work our way through through some of these. So 
Uh, earlier on, we were talking about anchoring and availability. Um, and one of the when I mentioned to a friend that you were an upcoming guest, the the question he suggested is, well, the people who study biases and and the pitfalls of of human cognitions, they must be optimal decision makers, right? And I said, I, I'll ask. So, well, uh, certainly not. Uh, you know, and the way that I described it, there's system one and there's system two, and system one is very difficult to educate, and system one is where our, our intuitions come from, and system two very often is just the PR agent for system one. It just explains <laughs> decisions that were made. Rationalizes. Yeah, it rationalizes. But system one does a good job uh, at keeping us alive on the yeah, savanna well, yeah, in dangerous yeah, circumstances. Sure. And, and not only on the savanna, you know, it, it, keeping, it keeps us alive. And most of the things that people do uh, are good. Mm -hmm. You know, we... I'm, Tversky and I are often considered sort of the prophets of irrationality. We don't never wanted that label. Mm -hmm. We don't believe that people are irrational. People are not perfectly rational. They couldn't be because they have a finite mind, mm -hmm. and perfect rationality demands much more. But, you know, they're quite reasonable, except they make predictable biases in some mistakes in some conditions. So by and large, most people get many of their important decisions right, and the ones that get wrong really stand out? Well, uh, you know, it's hard to count, but most mm -hmm. of the time, you know, most of the day, you are on system one. You know, right. you're doing things that are well-practiced, uh -huh. and most of them work. So we, we manage to get through our day without engaging uh, in... Without thinking too much. Mm -hmm. And... Well, that for sure. Yeah, and most of the time it works just fine. Mm -hmm. That that's that's quite. So, the answer to your question was a long one, but no, I I'm not smarter than I was when I began this line of research more than fifty years ago, because my system one is just the same way it was. I can recognize sometimes I can recognize situations in which I'm likely to make a mistake, so. Oh, this person is trying to anchor me. Yeah, I can recognize that. It still works on me, by the way, but but I can recognize it. So, well, let, let's talk a little bit about that. So I was always under the belief, apparently mistakenly, that if you become self-enlightened about your own biases, then you can undertake a series of steps to prevent yourself from doing damage. We, we were speaking uh, before the show started about indexing and, and global asset allocation. Now, are you picking stocks and timing markets, or have you taken your system two and allowed it to prevent system well, one from misbehaving? Uh, I personally don't do anything of the kind. Mm -hmm. I have, you know, but I'm a conservative person, and so there's nothing to be learned from the way that I handle my money, but I certainly... I would not advise picking individual stocks so or you, any form of very active management. You, you strike me as a passive indexer yeah. who, who you specifically said, I don't want to check my portfolio too often. People do that. And when they do, they tend to make mistakes. So this seems like a little closer to optimal decision making. You've identified a couple of uh, biases that affect how people invest. And you're uh, engaging in a behavior to prevent yourself from. Well, I'm mostly very lazy. <laughs> you know, that's it. That's you can get to the same point by being rational or by being lazy. Okay. In my case, it's laziness. If that was true, I, I would have been a much better student in high school. Um, so, uh, Jason Zweig of the Wall Street Journal is um, was uh, an editor uh, with you on um, some work you did. And he said, you, you once said to him, and I want to get the quote exactly right, you have no sunk costs. So we're all familiar with the sunk cost fallacy. How do you have no sunk costs? I mean, I have, you know, it was in a particular context. It was in the context of how many drafts do you write? Mm -hmm. And I have no sunk costs in the sense that the mere fact that I have written something even if it's 20 or 30 pages. If now I decide it's not good, I don't try to fix it. 
I start over. Throw it away and start yeah, over. That's that's having no sunk costs. Now, uh, the the implication is some people would have said, "Hey, I spent two hours on this. I, I'm going to go back and edit this and try and make it." You that that time and effort is spent. As far as you're concerned, you're starting from scratch. And, and I think you do better things that way. Mm-hmm. If if you're if you forget about the work that you've already invested, but if you if you have found a better solution now, instead of saying, oh, I should have written that chapter differently, mm-hmm. you just rewrite that chapter differently. Now, don't most people suffer from the sunk cost effect? They feel, well, I, I already spent this money and now I'm com- I bought this stock and now I'm kind of committed I mean, to it. You know, I've, we're talking about writing, not, mm-hmm. not, uh, Decisions in but general. it's still it's still work process. It's still effort, and people tend to think. Oh, of, I mean, most people are highly sensitive to some cost, and I would not say that I'm not in other domains of life. Mm-hmm. I said I'm free of some cost in the domain of writing, and that's what Jason Swag was writing about. Because actually, he thinks that most writers are very reluctant to start over. Yes, absolutely. So you, you've put the time and effort in. Gee, I don't want to throw this away. Yeah. I have something to work with. Um, it's always easier to do that that second draft than it is to start with a plain sheet of paper. Yeah. No, no doubt about that. So we haven't really talked about the endowment effect, um, but I have a, a my favorite example that I wanted to share with you because I, I find this such a fascinating subject. Whenever, so I'm a car guy, and that means very often friends and family come and ask me about. I'm thinking about this car or that car, what, what's your view? And I've noticed it's a fascinating subject, like, like the two football teams who are so evenly matched. When someone comes to you and says, I'm, I'm considering these two cars, I'm thinking about the Toyota Camry or the Honda Accord, and the Camry has this, this, and this, but the Accord has that, that, and that, and it's, it's pretty evenly matched, and I, I'm, I, I'm having a hard time making a decision. What's your opinion? And so I'll say, well, they're both great cars. You won't go wrong with either. But I think this one is a little nicer. What What do you think? I'll try and ask them some questions. Six months later, you see them, and they bought car A over car B. And you ask them, how do you like the car? And the answer is, I can't imagine I was even considering that other car. This car is fantastic. Now, nothing has changed. These are two really good automobiles, except for the fact that he now owns this car. So what is it about ownership that makes us think this is better, more valuable, whatever? Why do we endow these these objects with, with superiority? Well, when you've owned something for six months, uh, you think highly of it because it's become familiar. And almost everything that is familiar, you like better. Really? So familiarity doesn't bring contempt. Familiarity makes you like things. So that's a, that's a big psychological rule in general. E- even in the study where I think it was a, a mug with the school's name no, on no, it? No, that's a different story. So that I said when you own something in the, for a long time. Mm-hmm. When you're discussing trading, mm-hmm. then if you're not a professional, if you're an individual and you're thinking of a mug, then you're not thinking of like thinking of wealth. You're not thinking of the state of the world in which you have that mug as against the state of the world in which you have seven dollars in uh-huh. addition to your wealth. You're thinking if you have the mug, do I give it up? And if you don't have the mug, do I get it and give up the money for it? And giving up is more painful than gaining. And that's how loss aversion gets involved sure. in the endowment effect. It doesn't play any role in your story about the car because you're not about to trade the car. So your liking for the car mm-hmm. is more an effect of familiarity and of something, a psychological process that's called dissonance reduction. Mm-hmm. You chose that car, therefore it must be good. So that is true that almost anything that you chose becomes better because you chose it. But that's a different process than the endowment effect. That's totally, because it seems there's a big overlap between I chose it, therefore it's good, and I already own it, and therefore it's valuable. Well, because 
you may own it without having chosen it. You know, I give you that mug mm-hmm. and I ask, would you sell it? So you just had it for 30 seconds and you're, you get the offer to that sell it. That makes sense. So it's a different process. Hmm. That's quite, that is quite fascinating. Um, so I like this quote from Thinking Fast and Slow. Our comforting, comforting conviction that the world makes sense rests on a secure foundation of our almost unlimited ability to ignore our own ignorance. Explain that. Since you mentioned dissonance, I thought that was a a good point to bring this up. Well, uh, earlier we talked about something I write about in the book, which is what you see is all there is. Mm -hmm. And the idea that what you don't see is, you know, could refute everything that you believe. Sure. That just doesn't occur to us. So it's it's another way of telling the story I was telling earlier that we construct the best possible narrative about the world and if we're successful in constructing a good story, we believe it, we have a high confidence in it and we don't want to change it. That makes perfect sense. Um, let's talk about regression to the mean and your conversation with the uh, fighter pilot instructor who felt every time he yelled at a cadet, they would do better and kind of ignored the fact that maybe it just happened to be he did poorly and he was due to do well. Well, the whole, you know, it's actually quite remarkable that a statistical fact that, you know, is as common as as the air we breathe is is very non-intuitive and that's regression to the mean. So Mm -hmm. uh, the fact is, that, you know, if you look at, at golfers, that's the example I develop in the book. So you look at the th- three guys who scored the highest score yesterday. Chances are they're going to do less well today. Mm-hmm. And that's, I'll tell you why. It's because yesterday their success was in part due to luck. Mm-hmm. And luck is not going, not guaranteed to follow them today. So we have to think of regression to the mean that what we see has already luck built into it. And luck is not going to stay. So next time, and next time it's likely to be less successful. You know, the golfer is likely to be less successful than he was because he's likely to be less lucky than he was. And and people dramatically underestimate the impact of chance on their results. Absolutely. The um, separating skill from chance especially in this field, is an ongoing battle. And very often what looks like very skillful managers turns out to be, hey, they were lucky for a couple of quarters and, and, and that was that. Sure. And we have a very strong tendency, you know, everybody has that. We have that about ourselves, that we attribute our, success, our successes to our skill and our failures, you know, to bad luck. But actually, there is a lot of luck in our successes as well that we don't see. That That is uh, uh, an ongoing issue uh, amongst investors and traders. Um, it's, it's always bad luck when the trade doesn't work out. But when it does work out, it's because I'm a genius. That's and, right. and we see that we see that all the time. So uh, having read a lot of what you've written and, and over over a long time, I was surprised to to learn that you don't describe yourself as particularly optimistic. And I thought that was kind of interesting because you've spent, what, more than a decade now looking at happiness and and utility. Um, So the first question I have to ask is, has studying uh, this field made you any more optimistic or any any happier? No, I mean— you know, optimism is genetic anyway. And, is it? You know, yeah, largely. Uh, and, you know, I'm the son of a very pessimistic mother. And so pessimism is sort of genetic too. I could see that. Is, is it genetic or is it the home you were raised in? No. I'm just, I'm it, just projecting. It is actually, <laughs> it's actually genetic. Really? So, yeah. so In what- large part. So studying utility and studying happiness, what what conclusions have you reached uh, based on that research? Well, 
The main conclusion was that there is a difference between what makes us satisfied and what makes us happy. So there's a distinction between the two. There's a the distinction two. between the two. Being happy means having you know, having happy experiences. Mm -hmm. And being satisfied is when you look at your life and what you've accomplished, are you content and are you satisfied with what you've accomplished? And those two are really not the same. Which is more important? Well, uh, it turns out that for most people, what they try to do is they try to be satisfied. Mm -hmm. They go for satisfaction and not for... They are not thinking, how can I maximize the quality of the of my life. Mm -hmm. So, and many people I think make big mistakes on that. They they saddle themselves with a big commute to have a larger home. Mm -hmm. You know, the big commute means an hour or two a day that are wasted. Mm -hmm. You know, that count, time should count for a lot. Sure. Because it's the only thing we've got basically. Right. And people who waste time in order to achieve something else are wasting the part of their life. Mm -hmm. So so the studies I've seen is the longer your commute is, the less happy you are. Does that also lead to the less satisfied you Not are? Not necessarily. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily. Because if having a big home is part of your satisfaction, if you're sort of proud of the house you got, uh, and you're paying for it by a long commute. You may be words, quite satisfied, although you're not happy. You, you get a bigger house closer yeah. to your job, but it's going to be a lot more expensive. Yeah. So, so they're trading the time for. Uh, That's uh, right. That that makes some sense. What what else have you? What other things have you taken away from studying happiness and satisfaction? Well, you know, I think, I think it turns out that people are happiest in. When they're in the presence of friends, actually. Mm -hmm. Friends, and in, you know, there is a, a special thrill, I think, for people to be with friends, which is even more than to be with family. Really? Why oh, is yeah. that? Well, I mean, there's something more relaxing. And, you know, when you're in a family, there are many obligations and, and many stresses, chores. And, sure. And so this is a pleasure situation, being with friends. But those are some of the best moments of the week mm -hmm. uh, when you're not alone. There are, there is a particular joy for many people in having shared routines with friends. Mm -hmm. You know, the weekly poker game, the the weekly dinner and movie that that you share with friends over a period of years. That becomes very precious, and it's you know it's, it becomes an important part of life. That that's really uh, quite intriguing. Um, you know, a lot of the discoveries we've talked about have the feeling to me of, of epiphanies. So one of the things I specifically wanted to ask you about, when you were doing the officer candidate evaluations for the Israeli army, um, or when you uh, would ask colleagues how long they thought it would take for, for a project to be done, uh, the results of these were just really, wow, this is much different than everybody everybody believed. So what was it about your background and your training that let you look at the world so differently than everybody else around you? Obviously, these behaviors exist amongst everybody. What led you to these really fascinating discoveries that everyone else seems to have overlooked? Well, uh, you know, I, I had a I was born to be a psychologist. I really believe that, not mm -hmm. by fate, but you know, this is the thing. I was, I was better at that than at anything else, and I've always been interested in observing people mm -hmm. and in trying to figure out, you know, why they are, where they feel, what they feel, and and so that sort of curiosity about people, I think, has you know somehow paid off for me. So, um. Um, so let's get to some of our favorite last few questions. I know we only have you here for a finite amount of time. These are the standard questions we ask all of our guests. Um, we, we discussed uh, your, your, you knew right away you were going to be in academia your whole career. Who were some of your early mentors? Well, 
I had professors I I, I had professors I loved um, when I was an undergraduate in Jerusalem. One in particular, I wouldn't call him a mentor, but you know, he what, was. A, what's his he name? Was a, Yoshua Leibovitz mm-hmm. uh, was his name. He was a hero to me and to many other people. Really? Why Why is that? What, what did he, he do a, that resonated with you so much? Uh, he just was a very powerful personality. He had strong opinions about everything. He knew a lot. Uh, he was, he had several doctorates. Uh, he was, and, and he had a, a very individual character. So I loved, I, he, mm-hmm. he made a deep impression on me. Uh, in in graduate school, I had quite a few teachers, um, especially the one who supervised my thesis at Giselli. But I learned from quite a few people when I was in, in graduate school. I don't think I ever had a proper mentor uh, in the sense that that many graduate students today, they they get into a lab and they're associated with the same person throughout mm-hmm. their career in graduate school. That wasn't the case when I was in graduate school. You didn't belong to a lab. And, and so I didn't have that experience. So any previous psychologists or, or clinical um, experimenters influence your approach to what oh, you did? Oh, yeah, many. I mean, mainly... A man named Paul Meal, mm-hmm. uh, who, who was the first to compare algorithms to clinical judgment, and really? to reach the conclusion that algorithms are actually more accurate in many many cases than than intuitive judgment. Now I'm I'm I hope I'm not misremembering it. Um, something you wrote specifically said even after we show people the success ratio of the algorithms, they still wanted to stick with their, uh, that, their intuition. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, people, have, yeah, people don't love algorithms. and, and They better get know, used to them because they're taking over that's everything. That's right. This is happening. But, you know, when you even think about that, mm-hmm. uh, when a doctor makes a mistake and a child dies, this is terrible. Mm-hmm. But if it was a piece of artificial intelligence that made a mistake and a child dies, that would be worse, at least today. Because we trust the machinery and the no, machinery failed us? No, because it's more shocking. Mm-hmm. It's more shocking when it's impersonal. You know, when a self-driving car has an accident. We just learned about We just this. learned about that. But it, there's something more shocking about the idea uh, so just think about that, uh, somebody dying in, a, in an accident or somebody dying in an accident with a self-driving car. And, and that second idea is somehow more shocking. So he, people really don't, for the time being, this is going to change. But there is such a thing, it's been called algorithm aversion. Really? Yeah. You know, when you look at the statistics, let's use the self-driving car, by all measures, they're they're safer. They're more reliable. They're less likely to be involved in either a major or a minor accident. Doesn't mean you're going to eliminate those sort of accidents. So when one happens, it, it seems well, to really resonate. Uh, people, I mean, part of that is that uh, there are things that are viewed as natural mm-hmm. or as you know, sort of acts of God, and those we've learned to accept. But when it's acts of men. Mm-hmm. It's very different. So the the best example is vaccines. Mm-hmm. So uh, vaccines, you know, could cause side effects. Side and... effects. Well, they could. Let's take a child who died from a vaccine. Mm-hmm. Now, how many children would the vaccine have to save to accept the death of one child from the vaccine? It's right. clearly not one-to-one. No, it's, it's a lot more. Millions, millions to one. I don't know. I hope it's not millions because that would be crazy, but uh, but but it's a lot more than one. Mm-hmm. And so what, what happens here is that anything that is man-made, we have a much stronger reaction to than, than if the same thing occurs naturally. Hmm. That, that's quite fascinating. So, so let's talk about books. What are some of your favorite books, be it fiction, nonfiction, Michael Lewis, or otherwise? Well, uh, in nonfiction, the best book I've read in, in several years is called Sapiens. 
Sure. It's the short history of humankind. Yuval Harari. Yuval right. Harari. Uh, I think it's superb. It's literally on my night table. Yeah. It's the next book up in my queue. Well, if you're I, telling me it's superb, I'd better start it sooner. I've read than it later. twice. I mean, really? I don't. Yeah, and there aren't many books I've read twice. Wow, that's some so, endorsement. No, I think it's. I think he's very impressive. So that's that was one. Uh, certainly, Nassim Taleb's book mm-hmm. uh, had a big effect on me. His Black Swan book. or Fooled by Randomness. Mostly the Black Swan, but mm-hmm. you know I had liked Fool by Randomness too. Uh, but the Black Swan, uh, I learned a lot from. Mm-hmm. And then obviously uh, there are works by by people I know, like uh, Nudge and Thaler, Thaler, Gilovich. I mean, so those are many of some uh, of your favorites. Yeah. Um, so. You mentioned you've been doing this for 50 years. What has changed in the field of psychology that really stands out to you over over that long period? Well, it's, you know, when I started uh, my studies, uh, a lot of psychology was still concerned with rats running mazes. Mm-hmm. And so the what is called the cognitive revolution occurred during my career early in my career. So people sort of forgot, you know, just set rats aside mostly except for physiological work. Mm-hmm. And when they wanted to study how the mind works, they studied how people think. So that that was a big change. And and there have been many other changes. In, in recent years, mostly it's the study of the brain that is taking over. Mm-hmm. And you know that's huge. The fMRIs and, yeah. and that sort and, of stuff. You know this this came too late for me mm-hmm. to be in, be involved in. But if I'd been younger, I would have done what younger colleagues of mine did, and I, they switched. Is that going to be the biggest change going forward? Is the ability to peer into the brain yeah, while I'm, it's in operation? I'm convinced that that's the case for the next few decades. Really? Yeah. few decades? Wow, that's that's amazing. All right, so we're up to our last two questions, our final two questions. If a, a millennial or a recent college grad came up to you and said, hey, I'm thinking about a career in, in experimental psychology, what what sort of advice would you give them? Whether to go into that or in something else? Well, they said, I'm, I'm considering this career. Uh, what advice do you have for me? What, what would your answer be? You must have had people, students at Princeton ask you all the time. No, I mean, I, I would ask, what kind of psychologist do you want to be? And are you sure you want to be that kind of psychologist? Uh, mm-hmm. And there are certain lines of studies, like going to graduate school, it's not for everybody. And some very, very smart people who could succeed in graduate school should really not do it because they, are, they will be happier doing something else than being an academic. An academic is, is, is a life that's good for, for a minority of people and mm-hmm. for most others, you know, it's, it's not great. Mm-hmm. So uh, I would never have ready-made advice you it know, really depends on the individual. It really depends on the individual. And and our final question, what is it that you know about psychology and the human mind today that you wish you knew when you began 50 years ago? I can't think of that, actually. I mean, that's very odd. You know... Uh, Fifty years ago, I didn't know many of the things I know today, and today I know a negligible amount compared to what people will know, you know, fifty years from now. Well, but and, you've also driven. And I don't. I don't regret not knowing mm-hmm. what I knew. I mean, discovering things and learning things has been so much fun mm-hmm. that I have no regret about what I didn't know then. Um, maybe regret's the wrong word. What, what would have been helpful to have known that you discovered later on in your career? I mean, there there, there are things that I learned even in recent years, in the last few years, mm-hmm. which is uh, there's a big change in psychology that, that people are suspicious and 
uh, there is what is called the reproducibility crisis in psychology. Sure, We've, that's across and, all science these yeah, days. Yeah, and it's across all sciences. That I wish I had been more careful about. Huh, that's and interesting. In particular because I had thought about it, I had all the tools to see it, and I was not sufficiently uh, aware of it. Dr. Danny Kahneman, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. If you have enjoyed this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you could see the other 100 or so such conversations uh, we've had over the past uh, two years. I would be remiss if I did not thank my producers, uh, Taylor Riggs and Charlie Vollmer. Charlie also working as our recording engineer today. And of course, our head of research, Michael Batnick, who has been uh, a huge help in helping to prepare these questions. We love your comments and questions and suggestions. Be sure and send us an email. You can write me at britholtz 3 at bloomberg.net. Um, you've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>